I'm Ben Kilm. I've wanted to be a missionary since I was 10 years old. Uh, we had friends who went to Papua New Guinea. Um, the guy, he was kind of like one of our uncles, and um, his wife was a teacher, he was a teacher, and they went to Papua New Guinea and worked on the Wycliffe Ukarumpa campus. And um, really, their short term, uh, I think they're down there a total of three years, uh, which by today's definition is long term, but at the time, they were associates and uh, considered to be short term. And that changed my life. I, at that point, you know, wanted, you know, everybody's asking, are you going to be a firefighter or a police or are you going to be in the military? What are you going to do with your life? You know, you're 10 years old, you have all kinds of crazy answers. And so I, uh, after talking to his son who was about my age, uh, thought, you know, I'm going to go be a missionary and I'm going to, you know, be a Bible translator. And so um, I set out to do that and then I hit English and I love to read, I love to write, and I hate formal grammar. Absolutely, passionately hate formal grammar. Still, to this day, hate formal grammar, right? But there's other kinds of grammar. There's applied grammar, and there's other aspects, descriptive grammar, uh, that I'm pretty good friends with. And so um, I, I thought, hey, I can be a pilot, because I like tinkering. I like fixing things. I'm, I'm pretty good in a pinch at, at making things run. And uh, so I'll be a pilot, because a missionary pilot has to qualify both as a pilot and also as a, a mechanic, airframe and power plant mechanic. And so I thought, hey, I'll do that. And so um, I set out to do that. Uh, how many of you have seen my eye when I was here Tuesday or in the past, you know me? I've got an eye that does this floaty thing. I have amblyopia and astigmatism. And uh, I have nearly 20-20 vision or a little bit better in both eyes, but they don't choose to work together. So that affects my depth perception. And so... They said, you could go through flight school five years at Moody, get all your certifications, and the medical examiner could fail you for your final exam. I thought, $100,000, five years of my life down the tubes, I'm not doing that. So I came to Montana State, and I ended up with a construction engineering degree and um, was part of the college group and was discipled by the guys here and was part of, the, part of that team uh, running the college group. And so... That, I, I would say, was more valuable than my actual engineering degree, of which I took what I needed and left the rest, so to speak. And so um, from there, I went and went into mission training, went to the field, been down there since 2005, so we're coming up on 10 years that we've been on the field. Um, so I, in, in the process of, of getting qualified, there's a lot of ways you have to qualify in life for the different things you want to do, right? And so... One of those things is language. How many of you have been overseas? How many of you have been overseas for more than two weeks? More than six months? How many of you are MKs? MK? Where from? Brazil. Sweet ride. Dolaban? So, would you, how long were you in Brazil as a kid? Like your entire lifetime or a couple years or? Okay. This is a very delicate topic. Have you been back as an adult? Okay. How would you compare your Portuguese to a native speaker? Okay. There's a humble man right there. I'll tell you why. Because I've qualified as proficient in, in two languages besides English and had to, had to work my butt off to get there. And what you have sitting back there is a humble man that recognizes his own limitations in a language. See, the thing is... Everybody approaches language as though 
uh, if, if you don't understand it, the other person's interacting, they must be fluent. You've seen that, I'm sure. And um, you've also probably seen senior mission personnel who've been down there 20, 30 years and still don't speak the language nearly as well as yourself. Definitely shouldn't be qualified for the, the ministry they're in, teaching at seminaries or teaching in different places, okay? That's kind of the dark underbelly of missions. So, but... M- all of you are here at Montana Bible College because you want to learn the Word, and most of you are headed for some kind of ministry, right? Raise your hand if you're not headed for some kind of ministry. Oh, all right. Clears that up. Right. So you're going to have either be, you're either going to be a missionary, be married to a missionary, if, uh, that's you know, your unfortunate pleasure, or uh, you're going to be in contact with missionaries, right? And you're going to have people say to you, I am fluent in the language when they come back from two weeks, six months, whatever their little short term is, right? And so here's, here's what happens. And it can be 30 years, and they might say they're fluent. So here's what happened when I learned to play the piano. I, I was taking piano lessons, and I, I was accelerating through the program. And so people say, oh, I can play piano too. All right. Do they play the piano? That is playing the piano. Is it musical? Not so much. It's like throwing raw meat in front of a rabid dog when you say you're fluent to somebody who's actually qualified. And the reason I'm picking, what's your name? Nathan. All right, cool. My brother's name is Nathan. Um, The reason I'm picking on Nathan is that because he's been in Brazil and has an accurate perspective of his own language abilities, is that even growing up there doesn't make you qualified to speak at a teaching level. Did you know that? That's why you're here at Montana Bible College. You're trying to become skilled at speaking. You're trying to become skilled in whatever the thing is that you're going to do in life, right? And the same thing occurs for missionaries. I went down with all these things in my head, but no ability to communicate those ideas, okay? So then you have, then you have the, the joker that likes to do this. On the black keys, right? Is that musical? A lot more musical than the, the first kid, right? That was like... Right? So here's, here's your next trick. This is the senior missionary trick. This is the one that has been down the field so long and yet has never risen to the level of proficient. Excuse me. We'll just throw that over there. Um, I, hate, I hate cell phones, man. It's like an electronic leash. All right. So here's your senior missionaries that have really never qualified as proficient, and they still leave considerable doubt in the minds of their hearers. Like if you've ever had, how many of you had mounted case bolt for class? How many of you ever just walked out of there just thinking, what did I just hear? <laughs> right? <laughs> Monty's awesome, and he's speaking his own language, and yet he still has the capacity to mystify his, his students, right? I was in his class. I know what that's like. <laughs> and so uh, here, here's the senior missionary that, that, you know, they sound fluent to all of us, but, but the reality is to their own speakers of, their, of, their, of the language they're in, the second or third language, this... This is what they're, they're able to do. They're like... Now, how awesome is that? Does that not sound like something you'd actually sit to listen to? Tea shop or whatever you guys are into these days? It does, doesn't it? but you ask them to actually play something that's not on black notes, and they're just lost. 
And so, uh, by 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 getting kind of beat to death through the whole language thing, um, I got to where I could, you know. actually presenting no significant barriers by the use of your language and communicating with the people who hear you, right? And so in the process of going through that, that torture, I burned out. I accomplished what I set out to accomplish. I met all the standards that I was supposed to meet, not on the time frame or the time scale that people were pushing me to meet them on, which is one of the reasons, one of the factors in burnout, but I burned out. And so here I am. I've been back in the States 10 months. I'm not getting done what I'm supposed to be getting done. Uh, I just found out uh, like a month ago that it's not considered normal to have diarrhea for 10 years and just do your daily work. And I, that's what I've been doing ever since the beginning. And obviously we've tried to do things to fe- you know, affect that and treat that and different things. But there's a point where you go over the edge and this is what you all are in risk of. You're young, bright, shiny people that are excited to go do ministry. You're going to go over that edge at some point if you're not really careful. And so the question that I have for you today is who is shepherding the shepherds? See, the temptation in Western culture, as a Western Christian culture, is to get you... With all the tools you need, you know how to study the Bible. You've got a good hermeneutic. You've got some Greek. You've got some Hebrew. You've got some Old Testament studies. You've got some New Testament studies. And you are going to go change the world, right? But then you're going to try and compete. Let's say you're doing some kind of job where you're being supported, either through a church or as a, as a missionary ministry. It doesn't matter. But where somebody from a larger group of people is going to be looking at you, at least in your perception, they're going to be looking at you and saying, what are you doing with my money? Right? If you're an engineer, nobody cares what you do with their money. You do your job, you go home, they don't care what you do with your money. You can drive a Corvette, you can drive an old beater Chevy, you can live in a trailer, you can live in a mansion that you can barely afford. They don't care. As long as you show up to work at 8 and finish at 5 and fill the entire day with work that they want you to do, right? But in ministry, the, the idea is typically that people are looking at you, whether it be from as a pastor in your congregation, the people looking at you, as a missionary, you've got the people on the field looking at you, you've got people at home asking, what are you actually doing with your life, things like that, right? And so you're going to try and put in somewhere between 50 and 70 hours of work a week to prove that you're just as hardworking as that carpenter, as that millwright, as the engineer, the nurse, the, the dentist, whoever it is, and you're going to get those hours in, Right? And guess what? You're going to burn out because you're not trying to do God's work God's way. You're just trying to get your hours in. You're trying to get things done. And you're saying yes to everything instead of no to a lot of things. How many of you studied John 6 yet? I think it should be mandatory before you get out of Bible college to study John 6. I was talking to Monty Casebolt, the 4th of July parade over in Livingston, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing a John 6 ministry here. I took a, took a bigger church, and then I made it smaller. <laughs> but uh, he, was tell, he was actually talking to me about a friend that he whittled the church of 500 people down to about 50 over the course of his ministry. Doesn't really, doesn't really sound so good, does it? And, and I don't know all the particulars of that, but in John 6, Christ 
started telling them pure, unvarnished truth that wasn't hidden by parables about the Father's role in salvation and, and how he worked through the Son and all these different things that he brought. And he finally took an entire crowd of people that included, because you remember when, he, when he's uh, in Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says he, that, that Christ appeared to more, more than 500 people. There were, there were disciples all over the place. But in John 6, Christ really just whittled them down to the, to the 12, and, and he said, well, are you going to leave me too? Right? Kind of whittled them down, and they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Okay? And so at some point in your shiny young hearts, you're going to have to come to the point where you look for what God wants you to do instead of what everybody else is telling you to do. And, and I'm, still, I'm still burned out. I'm still in the middle of burned out. I'm one of the happiest burned out people you've ever met. And in, in the process of analyzing this, I thought I was doing a good job of protecting my wife and my family and, and my own heart by saying no. But I was already so far over the edge that, that saying no to all these things and stiff-arming things off so that I could focus on, on the essential job, which was to learn the language as a gateway to, to teaching ministry in, in the Quechua language, that there were all kinds of things in my environment that I couldn't even see or think or feel anymore, right? We were living on support. We're, we're usually below 70% uh, of our support. So missions is the only job where they say, how cheap can you do it? In, in other words, how cheap can you do it so you guarantee that you can't make a profit? And then you get to go raise your own support for that. And then you're only able to raise a certain percentage, so you made yourself the lowest bidder and then undercut yourself by another 25%, say, right? Genius. That's a factor that leads to burnout, right? And so, anyway, the question I have for you is, do you have to walk through that open door? If God gives you an open door, do you have to, to walk through that? Raise your hand if you believe so. I'm not going to make fun of you, I promise. Are you allowed to say no to an open door? Raise your hand if you think you can say no to an open door. Okay. I'm not here to change your lives. I'm not here to uh, send you on a new direction. What I'm here to do is I'd like to make you a little bit angry and make you think. I learned that from Dr. Heidi. <laughs> angry people think better. And if you don't believe that, take his Christology class. So um, what I'd like you to think about is who cares for the shepherds? If you are in a little town in West Dakota and you're the only one out there and you're pouring out your life for these people and you're, you're discipling and you're teaching and you're mentoring and you're training and you're doing all these things, but you're starting to get short with your wife or your husband or your kids. You're starting to snap at people that you care about. How did you get there? That's the question. Who shepherds the shepherds? How are you going to take care of your own soul? In Western Christianity, we want to get all of you shiny people already with the right tools and at the age of, say, the tender age of 21, 22, send you off, usually recently married, because you found the love of your life in the Gallatin Valley. And we send you off, and we say goodbye. We're never going to see you again. You have to do your thing, right? And 
the big problem with that is, is that you need shepherding and discipleship in your own life. And the question is, how are you going to get that when you're out in West Dakota? How many of you have been to, like, eastern Montana? Like, uh, I'm joking about West Dakota, but uh, Sydney, Gail, I mean, tell me what life's like in eastern Montana. It's hot and cold and one windy step from the gates of hell, right? <laughs> and, and when you're out there, and it, my sister lives out there. She moved out there when she got married 20 years ago. And uh, it has a subtle beauty. But there's nobody for miles around. And so if you're the spiritual light in your town, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to feed yourself? Because it can't be incumbent on you to feed yourself because that sounds really good. I had all the tools. The mission committee said, are you prepared to feed yourself on the mission field? I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I am. How well did I do at that, at shepherding myself? I would submit to you that I did a pretty poor job of it because I made it through the goalpost just barely, got qualified in the language. I'm a magician in two languages besides English. Possibly even better because when you learn it as a second language, you really reach for it and, and really go for the, the eloquent phrases and things like that. So my wife always jokes, man, you've got to dumb it down a little bit so people are going to get what you're saying in Spanish. Because I, I like to speak as an educated person. Most people I speak to are uneducated. And so I'm reaching for these, these nice, big, pretty things, and they're just getting lost because it's poetic. All right? So the thing is, is I made it through those goalposts, and I accomplished what I was supposed to do. I passed all my oral exams at, at final, finally, and um, I was burned out. I was just toasted. I, I was having to take timeouts from seeing my kids so I could have a good attitude with them. So do you really think that was God's will that I go about doing it that way? Raise your hand if you think that was God's will that I get that done that way. It wasn't. There is a better way to do that. And God willing, I will be able to help people in the future go through the horrors of language study and do it in such a way that they are able to glorify God through every aspect of that. And part of that has to do with the care of your soul, of shepherding. Myself would be shepherding them, but, but you as, as young leaders and, and young uh, people in ministry have to look for someone to shepherd your souls. How many of you would ever expect a doctor to graduate from medical school, skip residency, and go right to work? Does that sound ridiculous? Yeah, it does. You guys are pretty quiet. I'm used to like more interactive, like feel like you should throw things at you, but I don't really have anything that will damage you. Um, <laughs> no, you expect a doctor when they graduate, they're going to go get a lot of hand-holding in a residency. By, by doctors who are capable in their, their area, in their skill set. And then after they do the residency, they're going to subscribe to journals. They're going to attend continuing education. They are going to be doing things to make themselves more capable of doing the job they're supposed to do, right? But how many pastors, once you come squeaking through the doors of Bible education, whether it be Bible college or seminary or whatever the thing is, you come squeaking through, barely intact, at the edge teetering and financial ruin from, from paying for school or working at UPS or whatever your gig is. How many of you are going to be in good shape to go into ministry after, after doing that, after squeaking through those goalposts? Right? The question is, 
Who is going to shepherd the shepherds? So you need to find somebody or some people that are capable of understanding your situation that have gone before you to help you stay balanced, right? The American dream is to go 100% in every category. How many ladies in here are married? feel bad for you. Here's why. I'll tell you. <laughs> Marriage can be a tremendous pleasure and a benefit and a blessing from God. But one of the things that really shocked me when we came back, I've been here at Grace now since 93, all right? So one of the things that really shocked me was coming back and seeing the number of women um, that they're literally just great people. They're scampering through life, and every time you, my wife talks to them, they're like, I'm so busy. I just, you know, they're taking kids to volleyball, and they're picking up the kid from, you know, they drop a kid off at volleyball, and between the two ends of the volleyball appointment, they're picking up another kid to drop off a taekwondo or something, and then they go back and pick up the volleyball kid and make sure they have all their books so they can study while the taekwondo lesson finishes, and then they go home and do homework till 9 and make sure the kids are doing their homework, and then they get up and do it again. They're gray. Because their house has to be perfect. They have to be serving their husbands perfectly. They have to be loving their children perfectly, which we have this ridiculous standard for educating children, right? And so they, they become gray. Why? Because they're over the edge. Um, it, it's like when you get cancer, all of a sudden you find a bunch of other people that are either cancer survivors or are currently struggling with cancer, right? When you lose a, a, an adult family member, be it a brother, sister, or a parent, all of a sudden you find people who are struggling because God makes you sensitive to those casual things that are dropped in a conversation that all of a sudden you're interested in exploring, right? Like my mom said when she walked both of her parents in, into death, uh, it happened within about a nine-month period, both of them just completely failed. And she said up until that point, people would say, oh, yeah, I'm taking care of my parents, and she wouldn't understand what they were talking about. Now she does, and now she actually has a really big heart for people that are walking their parents through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Because you become sensitive to that. So because I'm burned out, I've become sensitive to burnout. I'm looking at people, and I'm, I'm looking at their lives, and looking at how they're living, and I'm thinking, the American church has a big problem with working too hard and not doing it God's way, right? You look at the ministry of Christ, and um, he pulled back from people continually, out of, out of the 33 or so years that God put him on earth, he was only in public ministry for three of those. What the heck did he do with the other 30 years? He was God in the flesh. What was he doing? And yet God chose, with God in the flesh, he, he chose to give him the task of entering public ministry at 30 years old or so, and then dying after three years. How many of you would be good with having three years of ministry? Yep, yeah, I'm done. I did my 12 dudes. One of them went and burned in hell, but that's all right. How many of you be content with that? No, you're reaching for more. You want to be better than God. You want 30 years of ministry. You want 60 years of ministry. You want to have 500 disciples, right? You're reaching for the stars. But if you're treating your wife bad because she's the only one you can trust, or you're treating your kids bad because they're always around you, I love my kids. I mean, you should see the way we play. But the thing is, is I don't want to hurt those little boogers, right? And I was hurting them because I was so beyond over the edge stressed out that it felt like they were taking needles and jabbing them in my brain, right? And that's not a good place to be. And that's why we took this furlough that 
people were pushing us. People were pushing us hard. You've got the language now. You've got to go teach so you don't lose the language. I'm like, so I'm going to lose a language that I've learned over the last six years. Just like that, right? That doesn't happen. But anyway, the thing is, like, how's your Portuguese? How long would it take you to get back into where you're flowing? How long have you been out? Okay. The, the investment of a lifetime isn't so easily tossed away, and I would almost guarantee you need about six months to get back to the level you were at in high school. I'm guessing. Just because I've seen a lot of MKs come back to Bolivia, who are, who are Spanish speakers, that left um, nearly fluent, but not nearly, they weren't university-level fluent, all right? And so I'm guessing more like six months. Two years would be overly humble, in my opinion. I could be wrong. You might have exceptionally high standards, too. Uh, anyway, so when, when you look at the life of Paul, a lot of times we really want to whitewash what he said, right? You know, he says, I, I, I long to be lifted out of this body of flesh. I, live, I, I want to be with the Lord, but I stay here because of you. Uh, he talks about all these things. I, I would submit to you that Paul also pushed himself over the edge at least one time, maybe more than one time, and that God used that in his life to give him a, a huge dose of humility that he otherwise might have not have obtained. And, and the thing is, Sadie and I kind of joke about it, but I believe the truth is that God sent us down to the mission field not so much for what we're going to do down there, but because of what he's going to do in our life, right? And that thing would be that both of us are very proud people. And he used that to humble us and to make us open to telling you about our sins and our struggles. I don't know that I, you could ask people that know me, like, like Gail's known me for a long time, and uh, Pastor Dave and people like that, you could ask, you know, if I was uh, open about my struggles and stuff. I, I think it was to a degree. But I don't believe that I was nearly to the degree that I am now. Right? Because the, the truth is, is that God is leading me through life, and my failures and, and struggles also give him glory. Right? It's not a life of perfection that you're called to live. So anyway, one of the things I... We did this little counseling retreat, and um, the guy down there pointed out a verse that uh, really hit me, and, and talking about the life of Paul, a lot of times we want to whitewash and say, well, it's false humility, because we've heard so many pastors and teachers around us with false humility. Like, well, you know, I really stumbled, because, you know, this morning I was kind of upset at my wife, because she didn't iron my shirt right. I'm like, dude, my wife hasn't ironed my shirts for, like, well, years, <laughs> right? And so you just think that, you're like... You know, false humility, false humility, false humility. I don't know that Paul could be accused of false humility if you read what he said and actually take it for what it is. Um, he definitely had some huge struggles in his life. And so, Second Corinthians, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. I would submit to you that he probably needed counseling and shepherding and people to come alongside, which is, I think, the reason he appreciated Barnabas so much. We're, um, indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. I've been there. When I was in the, what I call the belly of language study, when things were going really, really slow, um, I didn't know how I was going to make it sure. How many of you have ever seen a surfer come off a wave and get tumbled off a big wave? So, so you, some of you have seen that, right? I've never surfed, but I've played in the water a bit. And the, anyway, 
when a guy comes off a, a surfboard, goes down the water, you don't know which way's up. You don't know which way's down. You don't know where the air is. You just know that your lungs are burning and there's no oxygen available. So what do you do? You crawl for what you hope is shore. You just, everything you have, you're flailing for shore, right? And that's what the belly of language study was like for me. I knew I had to make it to shore. My wife was tired, I was tired, and we knew that we had to make it through that goalpost because if I didn't make it through the goalpost, I was never going back to Bolivia. There's just no way because I couldn't face going back into language study again. So that was in the belly where I despaired of life. And so now I'm here on shore, I'm picking all the sand out of my nose and my ears and my other orifices that I'm not going to mention, and trying to get air back in my lungs, right? And I'm no, I am no longer despairing of life. One of the things my, my wife did for me um, was she got me a Kindle last year. And in Bolivia, there's no reading material to speak of in English. Our, the library at the mission had uh, Louis L'Amour and Agatha Christie, which are great writers, but they're not going to exactly do what you need mentally uh, and spiritually for, for 10 years, right? So she got me a Kindle, and I started reading history and, and getting into archaeology and the things I really love in English. And I kid you not, I'd, hit, I'd been so far past the, the, the law of diminishing returns that I was getting like 10% out of 100% that I was giving, right? And so she gave me that Kindle, and I stopped working until midnight or 1 studying. And I started reading. I'd start reading when my kids were getting ready for bed like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. And sometimes I'd lay on the floor of their rooms and, and read with them. And I was reading, and sometimes it was two hours, sometimes it was six hours a night. And I kid you not, you guys packed this whiteboard all the way up here for the last two minutes of what I'm talking about. But most people's language, whoa. Um, most people's language learning is described as an inverted pyramid where you have your superior level, which is a native trained speaker, very few missionaries, even after years of exhausting work, never reach that level of superior because it's objective. There, there's objective testing to describe whether or not you're there. And it's really frustrated some people. Then you have the next level, which is proficient or advanced. Then you have your intermediate, which is what I call the belly, which is where, for me, everything is horrible. And you have basic, which is where most of your summer team people come back fluent at which means they can't narrate in the past tense, they can't speculate, all they can talk about is concrete events, and that's basic, all right? So, and I'm guessing from being in Brazil, you're probably somewhere here in intermediate. All right, so you're somewhere right in here, right? My language learning is like this, where that intermediate just goes forever and ever and ever, amen, and then I hit advance and I start, like it's like a rocket. You finally see it taking off when it's about... 600 feet off the ground, and it really starts to get momentum. That's how my language learning was. Sadie gave me that Kindle when I was in the belly right here, and I spent four months studying, and I hit advanced. I spent another four months studying, and I hit advanced mid, which is nobody does that. I'd spent years down in here. And in eight months, I'd crossed the divide between intermediate and advanced and hit up there. Why? Because she said, you're going to blow your brain up. You're going to die. You're, something bad's going to happen. She got me that Kindle, and, and thankfully, I, I was able to use it, and she saved my brain. And so this, this is my, my big exhortation to you guys this morning, is who's going to shepherd the shepherds? You've got to think about that. Who's going to take care of your souls? 
It can't be dependent on you because if you go over that edge, you can't find your way back without help. That's why you live in the body of Christ. Okay? So that, that's all. I'd, I'd like to wrap it up right there with that and say, who's going to shepherd the shepherds and who's going to care for your soul? And it's got to be somebody other than you because you will be led astray by work, by pressure, by your wife or husband getting cancer. There's all these things that God uses to push you over the edge and he'll use it to humble you. And being humble isn't fun. It's good for your soul, but it's not fun. It'd be better if you could become humble because you had good spiritual mentors that you kept through the life of your ministry. All right? So let's wrap it up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Pray that I didn't bore these people too much and uh, pray that they'll uh, at least grab onto the idea that um, we need to do your work your way and uh, consider who is going to be the shepherd of our souls, uh, even though we're in ministry and at the top of the food chain, wherever we're at, um, that, we, that we look to have people in our lives to keep us pointed to you and humble. Amen.